is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson Love Among the Chickens by P. G. Woodhouse Chapter 11 The Brave Preserver I could have wished, during the next few days, that Mr. Harry Hawkes's attitude towards myself had not been so unctuously confidential and mysterious. It was unnecessary, in my opinion, for him to grin meaningly when we met in the street. His sly wink when we passed each other on the cob struck me as an indifferent taste. The thing had been definitely arranged, ten shillings down and ten when it was over and there was no need for any cloak-and-dark-lantern effects. I objected strongly to being treated as the villain of a melodrama. I was merely an ordinary well-meaning man, forced by circumstances into doing the work of Providence. Mr. Hawkes's demeanour seemed to say, We are two reckless scoundrels, but bless you, I won't give away your guilty secret. The climax came one morning as I was going along the street towards the beach. I was passing a dark doorway, when out shimmered Mr. Hawk as if he had been a spectre instead of the most substantial man within a radius of ten miles. "'St!' he whispered. "'Now look here, Hawk,' I said wrathfully, for the start he had given me had made me bite my tongue. This has got to stop. I refuse to be haunted in this way. What is it now?' Mr. Derrick goes out this morning, sir. Thank goodness for that, I said. Get it over this morning, then, without fail. I couldn't stand another day of it. I went on to the cob, where I sat down. I was excited. Deeds of great import must shortly be done. I felt a little nervous. It would never do to bungle the thing. Suppose by some accident I were to drown the professor. Or suppose that, after all, he contented himself with a mere formal expression of thanks, and refused to let bygones be bygones. These things did not bear thinking of. I got up and began to pace restlessly to and fro. Presently, from the farther end of the harbour, there put off Mr. Hawkes's boat, bearing its precious cargo. My mouth became dry with excitement. Very slowly Mr. Hawk pulled round the end of the cob, coming to a standstill some dozen yards from where I was performing my beat. It was evidently here that the scene of the gallant rescue had been fixed. My eyes were glued upon Mr. Hawkes's broad back. Only when going into bat at cricket have I experienced a similar feeling of suspense. The boat lay almost motionless on the water. I had never seen the sea smoother. Little ripples plashed against the side of the cob. It seemed as if this perfect calm might continue forever. Mr. Hawk made no movement. Then suddenly the whole scene changed to one of vast activity. I heard Mr. Hawk utter a hoarse cry, and saw him plunge violently in his seat. The professor turned half round, and I caught sight of his indignant face, pink with emotion. Then the scene changed again with the rapidity of a dissolving view. I saw Mr. Hawk give another plunge, and the next moment the boat was upside down in the water, 
and I was shooting head-foremost to the bottom, oppressed with the indescribable clammy sensation which comes when one's clothes are thoroughly wet. I rose to the surface close to the upturned boat. The first sight I saw was the sputtering face of Mr. Hawk. I ignored him, and swam to where the professor's head bobbed on the waters. "'Keep cool,' I said. A silly remark in the circumstances. He was swimming energetically but unskillfully. He appeared to be one of those men who can look after themselves in the water only when they are in a bathing costume. In his shore clothes it would have taken him a week to struggle to land if he got there at all, which was unlikely. I knew all about saving people from drowning. We used to practice it with a dummy in the swimming-bath at school. I attacked him from the rear, and got a good grip of him by the shoulders. I then swam on my back in the direction of land, and beached him with much eclat at the feet of an admiring crowd. I had thought of putting him under once or twice, just to show him he was being rescued, but decided against such a course as needlessly realistic. As it was, I fancy he had swallowed of sea-water two or three hearty draughts. The crowd was enthusiastic. "'Brave young feller,' said somebody. I blushed. This was fame. Jumped in, he did, sure enough, and saved the gentleman. Be the old soul drowned? That girt fool, Harry Hawk. I was sorry for Mr. Hawk. Popular opinion was against him. What the professor said of him, when he recovered his breath, I cannot repeat. Not because I do not remember it, but because there is a line and one must draw it. Let it be sufficient to say that on the subject of Mr. Hawk he saw eye to eye with the citizen who described him as a girt fool. I could not help thinking that my fellow conspirator did well to keep out of it all. He was now sitting in the boat, which he had restored to its normal position, bailing pensively with an old tin-can. To satire from the shore he paid no attention. The professor stood up and stretched out his hand. I grasped it. "'Mr. Garnet,' he said, for all the world as if he had been the father of the heroine of Hilda's hero, "'we parted recently in anger. Let me thank you for your gallant conduct, and hope that bygones would be bygones.' I came out strong. I continued to hold his hand. The crowd raised a sympathetic cheer. I said, "'Professor, the fault was mine.' Show that you have forgiven me by coming up to the farm and putting on something dry. An excellent idea, me boy. I am a little wet. A little, I agreed. We walked briskly up the hill to the farm. Eukridge met us at the gate. He diagnosed the situation rapidly. You're all wet, he said. I admitted it. Professor Derrick has had an unfortunate boating accident, I explained and Mr. Garnet heroically dived in, in all his clothes, and saved me life," broke in the professor. "'A hero, sir! Achoo!' "'You're catching cold, old horse,' said Eukridge, all friendliness and concern, his little differences with the professor having vanished like thawed snow. "'This'll never do. Come upstairs and get into something of Garnet's. My own toggery wouldn't fit, what?' "'Come along, come along. I'll get you some hot water. "'Mrs. Beale! Mrs. Beale! We want a large can of hot water, at once!' 
What? Yes, immediately. What? Very well, then, as soon as you can. Now then, Garney, my boy, out with the duds. What do you think of this now, Professor? A sweet pretty thing in grey flannel. Here's a shirt. Get out of that wet toggery, and Mrs. Beale shall dry it. Don't attempt to tell me about it till you're changed. Socks. Socks forward. Show socks. Here you are. Coat. Try this blazer. That's right. That's right. He bustled about till the professor was clothed, then marched him downstairs and gave him a cigar. Now, what's all this? What happened? The professor explained. He was severe in his narration upon the unlucky Mr. Hawk. I was fishing, Mr. Eugridge, with me back turned, when I felt the boat rock violently from one side to the other, to such an extent that I nearly lost me equilibrium, and then the boat upset. The men's a fool, sir. I could not see what had happened, my back being turned, as I say. Garnet must have seen. What happened, old horse? It was very sudden, I said. It seemed to me as if the man had got an attack of cramp. That would account for it. He has the reputation of being a most sober and trustworthy fellow. Never trust that sort of man, said Eugridge. They are always the worst. It's plain to me that this man was beastly drunk, and upset the boat while trying to do a dance. A great curse, Drink, said the professor. Why, yes, Mr. Eugridge, I think I will, thank you, thank you. That will be enough. Not all the soda, if you please. Ah, this tastes pleasanter than salt water, Mr. Garnet, eh? Eh? Ha-ha! He was in the best of tempers, and I worked strenuously to keep him so. My scheme had been so successful that its iniquity did not worry me. I have noticed that this is usually the case in matters of this kind. It is the bungled crime that brings remorse. "'We must go round the links together one of these days, Mr. Garnet,' said the professor. "'I have noticed you there on several occasions, playing a strong game. I have lately taken to using a wooden putter. It is wonderful what a difference it makes.' Golf is a great bond of union. We wandered about the grounds, discussing the game, the entente cordiale growing more firmly established every moment. "'We must certainly arrange a meeting,' concluded the professor. "'I shall be interested to see how we stand with regard to one another. I have improved my game considerably since I have been down here, considerably. My only feat worthy of mention since I started the game,' I said, has been to have a round with Angus McLurkin at St. Andrews. "'The McLurkin?' asked the professor, impressed. "'Yes, but it was one of his very off days, I fancy. He must have had gout or something. And I have certainly never played so well since.' "'Still,' said the professor, "'yes, we must really arrange to meet.' With Eucridge, who was in one of his less tactless moods, he became very friendly. Eucridge's ready agreement with his strictures on the erring hawk had a great deal to do with this. When a man has a grievance, he feels drawn to those who will hear him patiently and sympathize. Eucridge was all sympathy. "'The man is an unprincipled scoundrel,' he said, "'and should be torn limb from limb. Take my advice.' and don't go out with him again. 
show him that you are not a man to be trifled with. The spilt child dreads the water, what? Human life isn't safe with such men as Hawk roaming about. You are perfectly right, sir. The man can have no defense. I shall not employ him again. I felt more than a little guilty while listening to this duet on the subject of the man whom I had lured from the straight and narrow path. But the professor would listen to no defense. My attempts at excusing him were ill-received. Indeed, the professor shewed such signs of becoming heated that I abandoned my fellow-conspirator to his fate with extreme promptness. After all, an addition to the stipulated reward— one of these days, would compensate him for any loss which he might sustain from the withdrawal of the professor's custom. Mr. Harry Hawk was in good enough case. I would see that he did not suffer. Filled with these philanthropic feelings, I turned once more to talk with the professor of niblicks and approach shots and holes done in three without a brassy. We were a merry party at lunch— a lunch, fortunately, in Mrs. Beale's best vein, consisting of a roast chicken and sweets. Chicken had figured somewhat frequently of late on our daily bill of fare. We saw the professor off the premises in his dried clothes, and I turned back to put the fowls to bed in a happier frame of mind than I had known for a long time. I whistled ragtime airs as I worked. "'Rum, old buffer,' said Eukridge, meditatively, pouring himself out another whiskey-and-soda. "'My goodness! I should have liked to have seen him in the water. Why do I miss these good things?' End of chapter 11「Is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson. Love Among the Chickens by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter 12. Some Emotions and Yellow Lupin. The fame which came to me through that gallant rescue was a little embarrassing. I was a marked man. Did I walk through the village, heads emerged from windows, and eyes followed me out of sight. Did I sit on the beach, groups formed behind me and watched in silent admiration. I was the man of the moment. "'If we wanted an advertisement for the farm,' said Eukridge on one of these occasions, "'we could have had a better one than you, Garney, my boy.' You have brought us three distinct orders for eggs during the last week. And I'll tell you what it is. We need all the orders we can get that'll bring us in ready money. The farm is in a critical condition. The coffers are low. Deuced low. I'll tell you another thing. I'm getting precious tired of living on nothing but chicken and eggs. So's Millie, though she doesn't say so. So am I, I said and I don't feel like imitating your wife's proud reserve. I never want to see a chicken again. As for eggs, they are far too much for us. 
For the last week monotony had been the keynote of our commissariat. We had had cold chicken and eggs for breakfast, boiled chicken and eggs for lunch, and roast chicken and eggs for dinner. Meals became a nuisance, and Mrs. Beale complained bitterly that we did not give her a chance. She was a cook who would have graced an alderman's house and served up noble dinners for gourmets, and here she was in this remote corner of the world, wringing the changes on boiled chicken and roast chicken and boiled eggs and poached eggs. Mr. Whistler, set to paint signboards for public houses, might have felt the same restless discontent. As for her husband, the hired retainer, he took life as tranquilly as ever, and seemed to regard the whole thing as the most exhilarating farce he had ever been in. I think he looked on Eucridge as an amiable lunatic, and was content to rough it a little in order to enjoy the privilege of observing his movements. He made no complaints of the food. When a man has supported life for a number of years on incessant army beef, the monotony of daily chicken and eggs scarcely strikes him. "'The fact is,' said Eugridge, "'these tradesmen round here seem to be a sordid, suspicious lot. They clamour for money.' He mentioned a few examples. Vickers, the butcher, had been the first to strike, with the remark that he would like to see the colour of Mr. Eucridge's money before supplying further joints. Dawlish, the grocer, had expressed almost exactly similar sentiments two days later, and the ranks of these passive resisters had been receiving fresh recruits ever since. To a man, the tradesmen of Combe Regis seemed as deficient in simple faith as they were in Norman blood. "'Can't you pay some of them a little on account?' I suggested. "'It would set them going again.' "'My dear old man,' said Eugridge impressively. We need every penny of ready money we can raise for the farm. The place simply eats money. That infernal roop let us in for I don't know what." That insidious epidemic had indeed proved costly. We had painted the throats of the chickens with the best turpentine—at least Eugridge and Beale had—but in spite of their efforts, dozens had died and we had been obliged to sink much more money than was pleasant in restocking the run. The battle which took place on the first day after the election of the new members was a sight to remember. The results of it were still noticeable in the depressed aspect of certain of the recently enrolled. "'No,' said Eucridge, summing up, "'these men must wait. We can't help their troubles.' Why, good gracious, it isn't as if they've been waiting for the money long. We've not been down here much over a month. I never heard of such a scandalous thing. Pon my word, I've a good mind to go round and have a straight talk with one or two of them. I come and settle down here, and stimulate trade, and give them large orders, and they worry me with bills when they know I'm up to my eyes in work looking after the fowls. One can't attend to everything. The business is just now at its most crucial point. It would be fatal to pay any attention to anything else with things as they are. These scoundrels will get paid all in good time. It is a peculiarity of situations of this kind 
that the ideas of debtor and creditor as to what constitutes a good time never coincide. I am afraid that, despite the urgent need for strict attention to business, I was inclined to neglect my duties about this time. I had got into the habit of wandering off, either to the links, where I generally found the professor, sometimes Phyllis, or on long walks by myself. There was one particular walk along the cliffs, through some of the most beautiful scenery I have ever set eyes on, which more than any other suited my mood. I would work my way through the woods till I came to a small clearing on the very edge of the cliff. There I would sit and smoke by the hour. If ever I am stricken with smoker's heart, or staggers, or tobacco amblyopia, or any other of the cheery things which doctors predict for the devotee of the weed, I shall feel that I sowed the seeds of it that summer in that little clearing overlooking the sea. A man in love needs much tobacco. A man thinking out a novel needs much tobacco. I was in the grip of both maladies. Somehow I found that my ideas flowed more readily in that spot than in any other. I had not been inside the professor's ground since the occasion when I had gone in through the boxwood hedge. But on the afternoon following my financial conversation with Eukridge, I made my way thither, after a toilet which, from its length, should have produced better results than it did. Not for four whole days had I caught so much as a glimpse of Phyllis. I had been to the links three times, and had met the professor twice but on both occasions she had been absent. I had not the courage to ask after her. I had an absurd idea that my voice or my manner would betray me in some way. I felt that I should have put the question with such an exaggerated show of indifference that all would have been discovered. The professor was not at home. Nor was Mr. Chase. Nor was Miss Nora Derrick, the lady I'd met on the beach with the professor. Miss Phyllis, said the maid, was in the garden. I went into the garden. She was sitting under the cedar by the tennis lawn, reading. She looked up as I approached. I said it was a lovely afternoon, after which there was a lull in the conversation. I was filled with a horrid fear that I was boring her. I had probably arrived at the very moment when she was most interested in her book. She must, I thought, even now be regarding me as a nuisance, and was probably rehearsing bitter things to say to the maid for not having had the sense to explain that she was out. "'I er, called in the hope of seeing Professor Derrick,' I said. "'You will find him on the links,' she replied. It seemed to me that she spoke wistfully. "'Oh, it, it doesn't matter,' I said. It wasn't anything important. This was true. If the professor had appeared then and there, I should have found it difficult to think of anything to say to him which would have accounted to any extent for my anxiety to see him. "'How are the chickens, Mr. Garnet?' said she. The situation was saved. Conversationally, I am like a clockwork toy. I have to be set going.' On the affairs of the farm I could speak fluently. I sketched for her the progress we had made since her visit. I was humorous concerning Roop, epigrammatic on the subject of hired retainer and Edwin. 
Then the cat did come down from the chimney, said Phyllis. We both laughed. And, I can answer for myself, I felt the better for it. He came down the next day, I said, and made an excellent lunch of one of our best fowls. He also killed another, and only just escaped death himself at the hands of Eukridge. Mr. Eukridge doesn't like him, does he? If he does, he dissembles his love. Edwin is Mrs. Eukridge's pet. He is the only subject on which they disagree. Edwin is certainly in the way on a chicken farm. He has got over his fear of Bob, and is now perfectly lawless. We have to keep a steady eye on him. And have you had any success with the incubator? I love incubators. I have always wanted to have one of my own, but we have never kept fowls. The incubator has not done all that it should have done, I said. Eukridge looks after it, and I fancy his methods are not the right methods. I don't know if I've got the figures absolutely correct, but Eukridge reasons on these lines. He says you are supposed to keep the temperature up to a hundred and five degrees. I think he said a hundred and five. Then the eggs are supposed to hatch in a week or so. He argues that you may just as well keep the temperature at seventy-two and wait a fortnight for your chickens. I am certain there's a fallacy in the system somewhere, because we never seem to get as far as the chickens. But Eukridge says his theory is mathematically sound, and he sticks to it. Are you quite sure that the way you are doing it is the best way to manage a chicken farm? I should very much doubt it. I am a child in these matters. I had only seen a chicken in its wild state once or twice before we came down here. I had never dreamed of being an active assistant on a real farm. The whole thing began like Mr. George Ade's fable of the author. An author, myself, was sitting at his desk trying to turn out any old thing that could be converted into breakfast food when a friend came in and sat down on the table and told him to go right on and not mind him. Did Mr. Eukridge do that? Very nearly that. He called at my rooms one beautiful morning when I was feeling desperately tired of London and overworked and dying for a holiday, and suggested that I should come to Combe Regis with him and help him farm chickens. I have not regretted it. It's a lovely place, isn't it? The loveliest I have ever seen. How charming your garden is! Shall we go and look at it? You have not seen the whole of it. As she rose, I saw her book, which she had laid face downwards on the grass beside her. It was the same much-enduring copy of The Maneuvers of Arthur. I was thrilled. This patient perseverance must surely mean something. She saw me looking at it. Did you draw Pamela from anybody? she asked suddenly. I was glad now that I had not done so. The wretched Pamela, once my pride, was for some reason unpopular with the only critic about whose opinion I cared, and had fallen accordingly from her pedestal. As we wandered down from the garden path, she gave me her opinion of the book. In the main it was appreciative. I shall always associate the scent of yellow lupin with the higher criticism. "'Of course, I don't know anything about writing books,' she said. "'Yes,' my tone implied, or I hope it did, that she was an expert on books, 
and that if she was not it didn't matter. But I don't think you do your heroines well. I have just got The Outsider. My other novel, Bastable and Kirby, Six Shillings, Satirical, All About Society, of which I know less than I know about chicken farming, slated by Times and Spectator, well received by London Mail and Winning Post. And, continued Phyllis, Lady Maud is exactly the same as Pamela in The Maneuvers of Arthur. I thought you must have drawn both characters from someone you knew. No, I said, no, purely imaginary. I am so glad, said Phyllis. And then neither of us seemed to have anything to say. My knees began to tremble. I realized that the moment had arrived when my fate must be put to the touch. And I feared that the moment was premature. We cannot arrange these things to suit ourselves. I know that the time was not yet ripe, but the magic scent of the yellow lupin was too much for me. "'Miss Derrick,' I said hoarsely. Phyllis was looking with more intentness than the attractions of the flower justified at a rose she held in her hand. The bee hummed in the lupin. "'Miss Derrick,' I said, and stopped again. "'I say, you people,' said a cheerful voice, "'tea is ready. Hello, Garnet, how are you? That medal arrived yet from the Humane Society?' I spun around. Mr. Tom Chase was standing at the end of the path. The only word that could deal adequately with the situation slapped against my front teeth. I grinned a sickly grin. "'Well, Tom,' said Phyllis, and there was, I thought, just the faintest tinkle of annoyance in her voice. "'I've been bathing,' said Mr. Chase, apropos de botte. "'Oh,' I replied, and I wish, I added, that you'd drowned yourself. But I added it silently to myself. End of chapter 12
I've been reading sensational novels lately, and it seems to me that Mr. Hawks cut out to be a minion. Probably some secret foe of the professor's bribed him. My heart stood still. Did he know, I wondered, and was this all a roundabout way of telling me he knew? The professor may be a member of an anarchist league or something, and this is punishment for refusing to assassinate some sportsman. Have another cup of tea, Tom, and stop talking nonsense. Mr. Chase handed in his cup. What gave me the idea that the upset was done on purpose was this. I saw the whole thing from the Ware Cliff. The spill looked to me just like dozens I had seen at Malta. "'Why do they upset themselves on purpose at Malta, particularly?' inquired Phyllis. "'Listen carefully, my dear, and you'll know more about the ways of the Navy that guards your coast than you did before. When men are allowed on shore at Malta, the owner has a fancy to see them snugly on board again at a certain reasonable hour. After that hour, any Maltese policeman who brings them aboard gets one sovereign, cash.' but he has to do all the bringing part of it on his own. Consequence is, you see, boats rowing out to the ship, carrying men who have overstayed their leave. And when they get near enough, the able-bodied gentleman in custody jumps to his feet, upsets the boat, and swims for the gangway. The policemen, if they aren't drowned, they sometimes are, race him, and whichever gets there first wins. If it's the policeman, he gets his sovereign. If it's the sailor, he is considered to have arrived not in a state of custody and gets off easier. What a judicious remark that was of the governor of North Carolina to the governor of South Carolina respecting the length of time between drinks. Just one more cup, please, Phyllis. But how does all that apply? I asked, dry-mouthed. Mr. Hawk upset the professor just as those Maltese were upset. There's a patent way of doing it. Furthermore, by judicious questioning, I found that Hawk was once in the Navy, and stationed at Malta. Now, who's going to drag in Sherlock Holmes? You don't really think, I said, feeling like a criminal in the dock when the case is going against him. I think friend Hawk has been reenacting the joys of his vanished youth, so to speak. He ought to be prosecuted, said Phyllis, blazing with indignation. Alas, poor Hawk! Nobody safe with a man of that sort hiring out a boat. Oh, miserable Hawk! But why on earth should he play a trick like that on Professor Derrick, Chase? Pure animal spirits, probably. Or he may, as I say, be a minion. I was hot all over. I shall tell father that, said Phyllis in her most decided voice, and see what he says. I don't wonder at the man taking to drink after doing such a thing. I... I think you're making a mistake, I said. I never make mistakes, Mr. Chase replied. I am called Archibald the All-Right, for I am infallible. I propose to keep a reflective eye upon the jovial hawk. He helped himself to another section of the chocolate cake. "'Haven't you finished yet, Tom?' inquired Phyllis. "'I'm sure Mr. Garnet's getting tired of sitting talking here,' she said. I shot out a polite negative. 
Mr. Chase explained with his mouth full that he had by no means finished. Chocolate cake, it appeared, was the dream of his life. When at sea, he was accustomed to lie awake a-nights thinking of it. "'You don't seem to realize,' he said, "'that I have just come from a cruise on a torpedo-boat. There was such a sea on as a rule that cooking operations were entirely suspended, and we lived on ham and sardines, without bread. How horrible! On the other hand, added Mr. Chase philosophically, it didn't matter much, because we were all ill most of the time. Don't be nasty, Tom. I was merely defending myself. I hope Mr. Hawk will be able to do as well when his turn comes. My aim, my dear Phyllis, is to show you in a series of impressionist pictures the sort of thing I have to go through when I'm not here. Then, perhaps, you won't rend me so savagely over a matter of five minutes' lateness for breakfast. Five minutes? It was three-quarters of an hour, and everything was simply frozen. Quite right, too, in weather like this. You're a slave to convention, Phyllis. You think breakfast ought to be hot, so you always have it hot. On occasion, I prefer mine cold. Mine is the truer wisdom. You can give the cook my compliments, Phyllis, and tell her, gently, for I don't wish the glad news to overwhelm her, that I enjoyed the cake. Say that I shall be glad to hear from her again. Care for a game of tennis, Garnet? What a pity Nora isn't here, said Phyllis. We could have had a four but she is at present wasting her sweetness on the desert air of Yeovil. You had better sit down and watch us, Phyllis. Tennis in this sort of weather is no job for the delicately nurtured feminine. I will explain the finer points of my game as we go on. Look out particularly for the Tilden backhanded slosh, a winner every time. We proceeded to the tennis court. I played with the sun in my eyes. I might, if I chose, emphasize that fact and attribute my subsequent rout to it, adding, by way of solidifying the excuse, that I was playing on a strange court with a borrowed racket, and that my mind was preoccupied, firstly with La Faire Hawk, secondly, and chiefly, with the gloomily thought that Phyllis and my opponent seemed to be on friendly terms with each other. Their manner at tea had been almost that of an engaged couple. There was a thorough understanding between them. I will not, however, take refuge behind excuses. I admit, without qualifying the statement, that Mr. Chase was too good for me. I had always been under the impression that lieutenants in the Royal Navy were not brilliant at tennis. I had met them at various houses, and they had never shone conspicuously. They had played an earnest, unobtrusive game, and generally seemed glad when it was over. Mr. Chase was not of this sort. His service was bottled lightning. His returns behaved like jumping crackers. He won the first game in precisely six strokes. He served. Only once did I take the service with the full face of the racket, and then I seemed to be stopping a bullet. I returned it into the net. The last of the series struck the wooden edge of my racket and soared over the back net into the shrubbery, after the manner of a snick to long slip off a fast bowler. "'Game,' said Mr. Chase. "'We'll look for that afterwards.' 
I felt a worm and no man. Phyllis, I thought, would probably judge my entire character from this exhibition. A man, she would reflect, who could be so feeble and miserable a failure at tennis could not be good for much in any department of life. She would compare me instinctively with my opponent, and contrast his dash and brilliance with my own inefficiency. Somehow the massacre was beginning to have a bad effect on my character. All my self-respect was ebbing. A little more of this, and I should become crushed, a mere human jelly. It was my turn to serve. Service is my strong point at tennis. I am inaccurate but vigorous, and occasionally send in a quite unplayable shot. One or two of these, even at the expense of a fault or so, and I might be permitted to retain at least a portion of my self-respect. I opened with a couple of faults. The sight of Phyllis, sitting calm and cool in her chair under the cedar, unnerved me. I served another fault, and yet another. "'Here I say, Garnet,' observed Mr. Chase, plaintively, "'do put me out of this hideous suspense. I'm becoming a mere bundle of quivering ganglions.' I loathe facetiousness in moments of stress. I frowned austerely, made no reply, and served another fault, my fifth. Matters had reached a crisis. Even if I had to lob it underhand, I must send the ball over the net with the next stroke. I restrained myself this time, eschewing the careless vigor which had marked my previous efforts. The ball flew in a slow semicircle, and pitched inside the correct court. At least, I told myself, I had not served a fault. What happened then, I cannot exactly say. I saw my opponent spring forward like a panther and whirl his racket. The next moment, the back net was shaking violently, and the ball was rolling swiftly along the ground on a return journey to the other court. "'Love forty, said Mr. Chase. "'Phyllis!' Yes. That was the Tilden Slosh. I thought it must be, said Phyllis. In the third game I managed to score fifteen. By the merest chance I returned one of his red-hot serves, and, probably through surprise, he failed to send it back again. In the fourth and fifth games I omitted to score. Phyllis had left the cedar now and was picking flowers from the beds behind the court. We began the sixth game. And now, for some reason, I played really well. I struck a little vein of brilliance. I was serving, and this time a proportion of my serves went over the net instead of trying to get through. The score went from fifteen all to forty-fifteen. Hope began to surge through my veins. If I could keep this up, I might win yet. The Tilden slosh diminished my lead by fifteen. Then I got in a really fine serve, which beat him. Vantage in, another slosh. Deuce, another slam. Vantage out. It was an awesome moment. There was a tide in the affairs of men, which, taken by the flood, I served. Fault. I served again. A beauty. He returned it like a flash into the corner of the court. With a supreme effort, I got to it. We rallied. 
I was playing like a professor. Then whiz! The slosh had beaten me on the post. "'Game end,' said Mr. Chase, tossing his racket into the air and catching it by the handle. "'Good game, that last one.' I turned to see what Phyllis thought of it. At the eleventh hour I had shown her of what stuff I was made. She had disappeared. "'Looking for Miss Derrick?' said Chase, jumping the net and joining me in my court. "'She's gone into the house.' "'When did she go?' "'At the end of the fifth game,' said Chase. "'Gone to dress for dinner, I suppose,' he continued. "'It must be getting late. "'I think I ought to be going, too, if you don't mind. "'The professor gets a little restive if I keep him waiting for his daily bread. "'Great Scott! That watch can't be right. "'What do you make of it?' Yes, so do I. I really think I must run. You won't mind. Good night, then. See you tomorrow, I hope. I walked slowly out across the fields. That same star, in which I had confided on a former occasion, was at its post. It looked placid and cheerful. It never got beaten by six games to love under the very eyes of a lady star— it was never cut out ignominiously by infernally capable lieutenants in His Majesty's Navy. No wonder it was cheerful. End of chapter 13《This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson. Love Among the Chickens by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter 14 A Council of War. The fact is, said Eugridge, if things go on as they are now, my lad, we shall be in the cart. This business wants bucking up. We don't seem to be making any headway. Why it is, I don't know, but we are not making headway. Of course, what we want is time. If only these scoundrels of tradesmen would leave us alone for a spell, we could get things going properly. "'But we're hampered and rattled and worried all the time, aren't we, Millie?' "'Yes, dear.' "'You don't let me see the financial side of the thing enough,' I complained. "'Why don't you keep me thoroughly posted? "'I didn't know we were in such a bad way. "'The fowls look fit enough, and Edwin hasn't had one for a week.' "'Edwin knows as well as possible when he's done wrong, Mr. Garnet,' said Mrs. Eugridge. "'He was so sorry after he had killed those other two. "'Yes,' said Eugridge. "'I saw to that.' "'As far as I can see,' I continued, "'we are going strong. "'Chicken for breakfast, lunch, and dinner "'is a shade monotonous, perhaps, "'but look at the business we're doing. "'We sold a whole heap of eggs last week.' "'But not enough, Garney, old man. "'We aren't making our presence felt. "'England isn't ringing with our name.' We sell a dozen eggs where we ought to be selling them by the hundred, carting them off in trucks for the London market and congesting the traffic. Harrods and Whiteleys and the rest of them 
are beginning to get on their hind legs and talk. That's what they're doing. Devilish unpleasant they're making themselves. You see, laddie, there's no denying it. We did touch them for the deuce of a lot of things on account, and they agreed to take it out in eggs. All they've done so far is to take it out in apologetic letters from Milly. Now, I don't suppose there's a woman alive who can write a better apologetic letter than her nibs, but if you're broad-minded and can face facts, you can't help seeing that the juiciest apologetic letter is not an egg. I meant to say, look at it from their point of view. Herod, or Whiteley, comes into his store in the morning, rubbing his hands expectantly. Well, he says, how many eggs from Combe Regis today? And instead of leading him off to a corner piled up with bursting crates, they show him a four-page letter telling him it'll all come right in the future. I've never run a store myself, but I should think that would jar a chap. Anyhow, the blighters seem to be getting tired of waiting. The last letter from Harrods was quite pathetic, said Mrs. Eugridge, sadly. I had a vision of an eggless London. I seemed to see homes rendered desolate, and lives embittered by the slump, and millionaires bidding against one another for the few rare specimens which Eugridge had actually managed to dispatch to Brompton and Bayswater. Eugridge, having induced himself to be broad-minded for five minutes, now began to slip back to his own personal point of view and became once more the man with a grievance. His fleeting sympathy with the wrongs of Mr. Harrod and Mr. Whiteley disappeared. "'What it all amounts to,' he said complainingly, "'is that they're infernally unreasonable. I've done everything possible to meet them. Nothing could have been more manly and straightforward than my attitude. I told them, in my last letter but three, that I proposed to let them have the eggs on the Times installment system.' and they said I was frivolous. They said that to send thirteen eggs as payment for goods supplied to the value of twenty-five pounds one shilling eight and a half d was mere trifling. Trifling, I'll trouble you. That's the spirit in which they meet my suggestions. It was Harrod who did that. I've never met Harrod personally, but I'd like to, just to ask him if that's his idea of cementing amiable business relations. He knows just as well as anyone else that without credit, commerce has no elasticity. It's an elementary rule. I'll bet he'd have been sick if Chappies had refused to let him have tick when he was starting his store. Do you suppose Harrod, when he started in business, paid cash down on the nail for everything? Not a bit of it. He went about taking people by the coat button and asking them to be good chaps and wait till Wednesday week. Trifling! Why, those thirteen eggs were absolutely all we had over after Mrs. Beale had taken what she wanted for the kitchen. As a matter of fact, if it's anybody's fault, it's Mrs. Beale's. That woman literally eats eggs. The habit is not confined to her, I said. Well, what I mean to say is, she seems to bathe in them. She says she needs so many for puddings, dear, said Mrs. Eugridge. I spoke to her about it yesterday, and, of course, we often have omelettes. She can't make omelettes without breaking eggs, I urged. 
"'She can't make them without breaking us, damn it,' said Eukridge. "'One or two more omelets, and we're done for. "'No fortune on earth could stand it. "'We mustn't have any more omelets, Millie. "'We must economize. "'Millions of people get on all right without omelets. "'I suppose there are families where, if you suddenly produce an omelet, "'the whole strength of the company would get up and cheer, led by father. "'Cancel the omelets, old girl, from now onward.' "'Yes, dear, but—' "'Well?' "'I don't think Mrs. Beale would like that very much, dear. "'She has been complaining a good deal about chicken at every meal. "'She says that the omelets are the only things that give her a chance. "'She says there are always possibilities in an omelet. "'In short,' I said, "'what you propose to do is deliberately to remove from this excellent lady's life "'the one remaining element of poetry. "'You mustn't do it.' "'Give Mrs. Beale her omelets, and let's hope for a larger supply of eggs.' "'Another thing,' said Eugridge. "'It isn't only that there's a shortage of eggs. "'That wouldn't matter so much if only we kept hatching our fresh squads of chickens. "'I'm not saying the hens aren't doing their best. "'I take off my hat to the hens. "'As nice a hard-working lot as I ever want to meet, full of vigor and earnestness.' It's that damned incubator that's letting us down all the time. The rotten thing won't work. I don't know what's the matter with it. The long and the short of it is, it simply declines to incubate. Perhaps it's your dodge of letting down the temperature. You remember, you were telling me? I forget the details. My dear old boy, he said earnestly, there's nothing wrong with my figures. It's a mathematical certainty. What's the good of mathematics if not to help you work out that sort of thing? No, there's something deuced wrong with the machine itself, and I shall probably make a complaint to the people I got it from. Where did we get the incubator, old girl? Harrods, I think, dear. Yes, it was Harrods. It came down with the first lot of things. Then said Eugridge, banging the table with his fist while his glasses flashed triumph. We've got em. The Lord has delivered Herod's into our hand. Write and answer that letter of theirs tonight, Milly. Sit on them. Yes, dear. Tell em that we'd have sent them their confounded eggs long ago if only their rotten two-penny-half-penny incubator had worked with any approach to decency. He paused. Or... "'Would you be sarcastic, Garney, old horse?' "'No. Better put it so that they'll understand. "'Say that I consider that the manufacturer of the thing "'ought to be in Colney Hatch, if he isn't there already, "'and that they are scoundrels for palming off a groggy machine "'of that sort on me. "'The ceremony of opening the morning's letters at Harrods "'ought to be full of interest and excitement tomorrow,' I said. "'This dashing counterstroke seemed to relieve Eukridge.' his pessimism vanished. He seldom looked on the dark side of things for long at a time. He began now to speak hopefully of the future. He planned out ingenious improvements. Our fowls were to multiply so rapidly and consistently that within a short space of time Dorsetshire would be paved with them. Our eggs were to increase in size till they broke records and got three-line notices in the items of interest column in the Daily Mail. Briefly, each hen was to become a happy combination of rabbit and ostrich. "'There is certainly a good time coming,' I said. 
May it be soon. Meanwhile, what of the local tradesmen? Eukridge relapsed once more into gloom. They are the worst of the lot. I don't mind the London people so much. They only write, and a letter or two hurts nobody. But when it comes to butchers and bakers and grocers and fishmongers and fruiterers and what not coming up to one's house and dunning one in one's own garden, well, it's a little hard, what? Oh, then those fellows I found you talking to yesterday were duns? I thought they were farmers, come to hear your views on the rearing of poultry. Which were they? Little chap with black whiskers and long, thin man with beard? That was Dawlish the grocer and Curtis the fishmonger. The others had gone before you came. It may be wondered why, before things came to such a crisis, I had not placed my balance at the bank at the disposal of the senior partner for use on behalf of the farm. The fact was that my balance was at the moment small. I have not yet in the course of this narrative gone into my pecuniary position, but I may state here that it was an inconvenient one. It was big with possibilities, but of ready cash there was but a meager supply. My parents had been poor. But I had a wealthy uncle. Uncles are notoriously careless of the comfort of their nephews. Mine was no exception. He had views. He was a great believer in matrimony, as, having married three wives, not simultaneously, he had every right to be. He was also of opinion that the less money the young bachelor possessed, the better. The consequence was that he announced his intention of giving me a handsome allowance from the day that I married, but not an instant before. Till that glad day I would have to shift for myself. And I am bound to admit that, for an uncle, it was a remarkably sensible idea. I am also of the opinion that it is greatly to my credit and a proof of my pure and unmercenary nature, that I did not instantly put myself up to be raffled for, or rush out into the streets and propose marriage to the first lady I met. But I was making quite enough with my pen to support myself, and, be it never so humble, there is something pleasant in a bachelor existence. Or so I had thought until very recently. I had thus no great stake in Eukridge's chicken farm. I had contributed a modest five pounds to the preliminary expenses and another five after the roop incident, but further I could not go with safety. When his income is dependent on the whims of editors and publishers, the prudent man keeps something up his sleeve against a sudden slump in his particular wares. I did not wish to have to make a hurried choice between matrimony and the workhouse. Having exhausted the subject of finance, or rather when I began to feel that it was exhausting me, I took my clubs and strolled up the hill to the links to play off a match with a sportsman from the village. I had entered some days previously for a competition for a trophy, I quote the printed notice, presented by a local supporter of the game, in which up to the present I was getting on nicely. I had survived two rounds and expected to beat my present opponent, which would bring me into the semi-final. Unless I had bad luck, I felt that I ought to get into the final and win it. As far as I could gather from watching the play of my rivals, 
the professor was the best of them, and I was convinced that I should have no difficulty with him. But he had the most extraordinary luck at golf, though he never admitted it. He also exercised quite an uncanny influence on his opponent. I have seen men put completely off their stroke by his good fortune. I disposed of my man without difficulty. We parted a little coldly. He had decapitated his brassy on the occasion of his striking Dorsetshire instead of his ball, and he was slow in recovering from the complex emotions which such an episode induces. In the clubhouse I met the professor, whose demeanour was a welcome contrast to that of my late opponent. The professor had just routed his opponent, and so won through to the semi-final. He was warm, but jubilant. I congratulated him and left the place. Phyllis was waiting outside. She often went round the course with him. "'Good afternoon,' I said. "'Have you been round with the professor?' "'Yes. We must have been in front of you. Father won his match.' "'So he was telling me. I was very glad to hear it.' "'Did you win, Mr. Garnet?' "'Yes, pretty easily. My opponent had bad luck all through. Bunkers seemed to have a magnetic attraction for him. "'So you and father are both in the semi-final. I hope you will play very badly.' "'Thank you,' I said. "'Yes, it does sound rude, doesn't it? But father has set his heart on winning this year. Do you know that he has played in the final round two years running now?' "'Really?' Both times he was beaten by the same man. Who was that? Mr. Derrick plays a much better game than anybody I have seen on these links. It was nobody who is here now. It was a Colonel Jervis. He has not come to Combe Regis this year. That's why father is hopeful. Logically, I said, he ought to be certain to win. Yes, but you see, you were not playing last year, Mr. Garnet. "'Oh, the professor can make rings round me,' I said. "'What did you go round in today?' "'We were playing match-play, and only did the first dozen holes. "'But my average round is somewhere in the late eighties. "'The best my father has ever done is ninety, and that was only once. "'So you see, Mr. Garnet, there's going to be another tragedy this year. "'You make me feel a perfect brute.' "'But it's more than likely, you must remember, that I shall fail miserably if I ever do play your father in the final. There are days when I play golf as badly as I play tennis. You'll hardly believe me.' She smiled reminiscently. "'Tom is much too good at tennis. His service is perfectly dreadful. It's a little terrifying on first acquaintance. But you're better at golf than at tennis, Mr. Garnet.' I wish you were not. This is a special pleading, I said. It isn't fair to appeal to my better feelings, Miss Derrick. I didn't know golfers had any where golf was concerned. Do you really have your off days? Nearly always. There are days when I slice with my driver as if it were a bread knife. Really? And when I couldn't putt to hit a haystack. Then I hope it will be on one of those days that you play father. I hope so, too, I said. You hope so? Yes. But don't you want to win? I should prefer to please you. Really, 
"'How very unselfish of you, Mr. Garnet,' she replied, with a laugh. "'I had no idea that such chivalry existed. I thought a golfer would sacrifice anything to win a game. Most things. And trample on the feelings of anybody.' "'Not everybody,' I said. At this point the professor joined us. End of chapter 14